So for this uh, session, probably more than any others, you'll probably want a Bible at hand, ready to go, because we're going to be looking at a specific kind of hermeneutic. Okay, so we're going to start uh, this next session, uh, typology or shadows, uh, if you want to call it that. Uh, this is a, it's a hermeneutic that's so dominant in scripture that it's probably like the main way that the New Testament talks about or references the Old Testament. And so it's probably important for us if we're going to rightly understand the New Testament, we should probably understand what typology is, how it's used, and how we can uh, apply that principle as well. Um, so again, just to give you an assumption on the front end, typology is not, we're going to look at this in a second, typology is not random happenings or patterns that, uh, that somehow occur by chance and that authors are picking up on and using as literary devices. That's not what typology is. Instead, uh, typology is probably best understood as because God is providential over all his creation and because he's writing the, the redemptive historical work, he's, he's in control of all of it, that he has put in his uh, story, if you will, patterns, types, and shadows of what is to come and that by his spirit, he's also working with human authors to pick up on these things so that later authors can develop and elaborate on those same things. This is the idea of typology. One, uh, one writer quotes it this way. He defines typology as God-ordained, author-intended, historical correspondence, and escalation in significance between people, events, and institutions across the Bible's redemptive arc. So it's God-ordained, it's author-intended, and it's correspondence from uh, writers in the past to writers later who pick up on those things. And I just want to kind of look at uh, two uses of typology, and then we'll look at maybe a more extended uh, uh, development of typology in Scripture. So the first two uses I want to look at is how Hebrews uses the Old Testament when it quotes from the Old Testament, and then we're going to look at how Matthew uses the Old, Old Testament when he, when he quotes from it. So uh, first, if you'll turn with me to the book of Hebrews. In your New Testament, it's probably close to the end. And we're not going to be in any one passage in Hebrews, but we're going to be skipping through and just looking at quick references. So the first thing to note, again, the author of Hebrews, remember we talked about author, audience, and their argument. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is, but fortunately for us, it's not so consequential to our understanding because we have a really solid argument, a very well-developed one, and we have a pretty clear understanding of who the audience was. It's somewhere in the first century church. And so between those two things, we have enough context to interpret uh, Hebrews faithfully. And one of the first things that we're told by the author of Hebrews by their own word uh, is long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So if you were to look then at the rest of chapter one in Hebrews, you'll notice quotations from the Old Testament and not just one from one text, but from a myriad of texts in the Old Testament. And these quotations are coming and being used by the author of Hebrews to, to apply to Jesus and to apply to how people or angels think about Jesus. For example, he says, um, to, whom, uh, to whom has he ever said, you are my son and today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So the author of Hebrews is using these uh, psalms that he's quoting there, first, uh, first Psalm chapter 2 um, and then Second uh, Samuel 7. He's using both of those to apply to Jesus. And so the question is then, is the author of Hebrews appropriately using these texts as he's developing them throughout his corpus? Now, to answer that question, we have to pick up on how the author of Hebrews begins to use these texts, and that becomes more clear to us 
For example, in chapter 3 of Hebrews, if you want to flip over there. So, the first thing, uh, I'm just going to start reading uh, in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So the first thing that the author of Hebrews is doing in in referencing Moses is he's going to say, hey, Moses was a kind of priest, a kind of intercessor. Jesus is better than Moses. So he's, he's doing this kind of compare and contrast thing. And he's not using the Torah inappropriately as the Torah talks about Moses and talks about what he is, because he's going to later talk about how Jesus uh, is greater than Moses. He's a better priest. He's a better sacrifice. uh, And he's a better intermediator, intercessor than any of the ones who come before him. Um, Another use of this uh, typology example uh, is ultimately later in chapter four, Jesus is our great high priest that gets developed. And then uh, in chapter seven, verse 11, if you want to flip over there, Uh, the author is kind of developing his argument throughout, and he, saw, he now introduces us in the beginning of chapter 7 to Melchizedek, who's mentioned briefly in Genesis. And remember, the, the authors of Scripture are writing divinely inspired work. And so the author of Genesis mentions Melchizedek, and he doesn't mention a whole host of other names that he could have mentioned. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this, and he says, Now, verse 11, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be to have for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron. So in, in talking about Jesus and talking about all that he is and the kind of priest he is, he says he's different than the Levitical priesthood. He's different than the line of Aaron. He's actually closer to the Melchizedekian priesthood, which preceded Aaron's priesthood. It preceded the Levitical priesthood. And uh, as he'll mention, Melchizedek doesn't even die in scripture. We're not told ever when he dies. And so the author of Hebrews is using these patterns that are present in Genesis to develop or to foreshadow later developments that would be true in Christ. So that's just an example of the use of typology. We're not going to get into all the particulars of that one. We will examine, is typology a faithful interpretation? I'm just introducing you to that it gets used. The next one I want to look at is in Matthew's gospel, the use of typology. And you can just go to Matthew chapter 2. So Matthew, like all the gospel writers, is writing to tell us about Jesus, his life, his ministry, and his work. And when Matthew writes, he starts in chapter 2 by describing to us, uh, this is starting in verse 13, he's describing to us a situation that uh, Herod wants to kill um, all of the children uh, who are below the age of two. And what Matthew uh, says in verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now if you were to look at which prophet that's referencing, and that exact quotation, it's referencing Hosea, who says, Out of Egypt I called my son. So it's not even, you know, out of Exodus when that happens. But what's interesting even more so is if you were to read that Hosea quotation, and I want you to turn there with me uh, to Hosea uh, chapter six. Hosea chapter six, verse 
or sorry, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. So I'm just going to read verse 1 and 2 of Hosea, and you'll catch the thrust of it. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So if you were to compare Hosea 11.1 1, and you were to ask, what is Hosea 11.1 1 about? And then you were to read Matthew's gospel, you were going to say, hold on, I recognize that quotation, but it does not seem that Matthew is using Hosea how Hosea was using this verse. And so the, then the question is, okay, how do we understand or reconcile these differences? We could say, on the one hand, Matthew has inappropriately chosen a quotation that had nothing to do with it. He's committed one of those fallacies we talked about earlier, one of those mistakes, and he should be slapped on the wrist and we can move along. But Matthew is an inspired writer, and so to threaten Matthew's understanding of Old Testament text is really to threaten whether we can trust any of what Matthew writes in interpreting these events and these signs. So then the question is, okay, how does Matthew... Uh, talk about fulfillment? How does he talk about the development of meaning? And what Matthew's drawing on is not a prophecy kind of fulfillment where, he's pr where Hosea predicts something that later comes true in Jesus. Matthew is drawing on what we would call a typological fulfillment, similar to the author of Hebrews, where the author of Hebrews is talking about shadows and types of later things to come. Here, Matthew is using uh, this story of Hosea, uh, and Hosea is particularly talking about Israel being an unfaithful, disobedient people who is the son of God, who was called out of Egypt, but remains disobedient. And so now, in knowing that context, Matthew introduces Jesus to us, and he says that unlike the Israelites who were called out of Egypt and then unfaithful, notice Jesus is out of Egypt, I called my son, he is the, the son of God. And then later, we're going to be introduced to how Jesus is actually obedient, he doesn't serve the Baals, he remains faithful. So he's applying the idea of sonship, which is corporately in the nation of Israel and presently in Jesus, and he's applying this idea of a disobedient, unfaithful son. And he's saying, unlike that, uh, when God now speaks again and he says, out of Egypt, I called my son, he's using the idea of God calling his son out of Egypt uh, into faithfulness. And this time we're to go, okay, is this son going to obey or disobey? Is he going to follow the pattern of the previous sons who disobeyed or is he going to follow the pattern and obey? So it's not that uh, Hosea is saying one thing and Matthew is saying another. Hosea is developing an idea that was introduced to him in the book of, uh, in the book of Exodus where Egypt, uh, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt and they're called out to obedience into the wilderness where they're not obedient. And then by Hosea's time, they've been so disobedient that now it's kind of just characterizes the nation. And Hosea calls them back to faithfulness and rebukes them by saying, God called you out of Egypt and you've remained unfaithful. And then Matthew picks up on that same idea and says, God called this one out of Egypt as well. Now the question is, is he the greater son? Is he a better son? Or is he also going to be a disobedient son? And that's kind of what's introduced to us by Matthew. So both of those are just looks at the use of typology. Um, and again, I've said on the front end, there's a difference between typology and uh, the author of the Holy Spirit uh, saying two different conflicting things. So one way to resolve the tensions that we just introduced is to say, uh, Matthew, uh, or sorry, uh, Hosea meant one thing when he wrote it, and the Holy Spirit was meaning something different as Hosea was writing. And Matthew picks up not on Hosea's meaning, but on the Holy Spirit's meaning. And so then Matthew uses the Holy Spirit's meaning, not Hosea's meaning. That is different than typology, because we would say in typology, the meaning downstream agrees with the thrust of the meaning that was introduced initially. That the downstream author, when using the text, if he was to show his notes to the original author who wrote it, 
the original author would go, yes, that's an appropriate use of the thing that I introduced earlier. I'm introducing a, a son, in this case a disobedient son, and I'm chastising them for it. That's what Hosea would say. And then if he was to read Matthew, Hosea would probably say, yes, now he's introducing a son. And in this case, the question is, are they going to be disobedient like the Baals? Or are they going to be obedient? And in, in Jesus' case, Matthew develops the obedience of the son of Christ, who is led into temptation in the wilderness, but does not fail, who is then obedient even to the point of death on the cross. So Matthew is picking up on Hosea's meaning and the thrust of what Hosea is saying, and not necessarily bound by everything that Hosea is implying when he uses it as well. That's an important distinction. And now we're going to try to look at one example of the development of typology in the Old Testament, how the Old Testament author intended it, and then how a New Testament author picks up on it. And this one, I promise we will resolve in full. Uh, and this is to start in Genesis. And we're going to look at Moses's use of the Adamic figure, and then later uh, Paul's use of that same figure. So if you were to uh, go to the very first uh, page of the Bible, again, this is why I say uh, all of our understanding and interpretation of Scripture has to take place in the Old Testament being the background of the New Testament. So when Paul writes in Romans, we can't really understand the full thrust of Paul's argument if we have not read the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the whole background in which Paul is writing in the New Testament. And so here, uh, we're going to see why that's so crucial. So in Genesis, uh, we are told in chapter 1, the creation story, that there is a man uh, who's created as the chief of God's creation, uh, who is Adam. We're told that's the name. Uh, and he breathes his breath into Adam, and he gives Adam a wife, and he gives Adam a garden, and he tells Adam, you need to be a steward and dominion over the earth. You need to guard this wife who you've been entrusted with, uh, and you are to be fruitful and multiply and to uh, subdue the creation. And uh, we're told in Genesis chapter 3 that this Adam uh, is... Uh, fails to guard his wife, that the serpent successfully tempts Eve, that Adam is standing right there when it happens. He fails to guard his wife. He is disobedient. He himself eats of the fruit. And in doing so, he falls short of his creation. And now the question is, okay, what is to be left with humanity? What, what solution do we have now? And so Moses introduces us to Adam. And then just to prove to you that Paul doesn't just pick up on this and then start talking about a new and old Adam, Moses himself introduces the idea of uh, atoms who are in the same pattern or in the same shadow of the initial atom. So as Moses writes Genesis, and in Genesis 3, we're told about Adam's fall. And then as you flip the page over, you get uh, a genealogy in chapter 5 of, from Adam all the way down to Noah. And then in the story of Noah from Genesis 6 to Genesis 9, we're told about Noah, who is now the new Adamic figure, who's the new uh, head of household over another family tree, another lineage. And the question is, is Noah going to fulfill the Adamic role? Because Noah is brought, saved by God, the rest of the earth is destroyed, Noah gets a new uh, kind of creation, he gets, a, he gets a vineyard, a garden, and the question is, is Noah going to fulfill what his forefather Adam fell short of? And in Noah's case, we're told uh, pretty early on that no, in fact, Noah gets drunk when he is present in this new creation after all the wickedness has been cleansed from the earth. And Noah himself falls short in the same pattern as Adam who came before him, Noah the head of house. And so Moses himself is developing Adam in both Adam and then uh, Noah. And then he develops it again because the next chapter after Noah's failure, we're introduced to Abraham in chapter 12. And God meets Abraham and he puts uh, a promise on Abraham to call him out of a land into a people. And he says, I'll be faithful to you. I will bless you and multiply you. That's the same imagery used of Adam uh, in Genesis uh, to be fruitful and multiply. And now the question, if you're a reader, is, oh, is Abraham the guy who's going to fulfill 
the call on Adam and he's gonna be the one who answers the question of falling short of Adam's role and actually completing the mission. And if you read about Abraham, uh, not only does Abraham immediately fail the call, but he does so in very peculiar language. So if you look with me in Genesis 12 and verse 10, I wanna read a particular story that seems strange in Genesis, except if you pick up on the patterns that Moses is laying out for us. So Genesis chapter 12, and I'm gonna read verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptian sees you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that I may go well with, you, with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptian saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham, and, she had, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, and male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So initially when you're reading Genesis, that might seem like a strange story to include in the development of Abraham, except for that the author Moses is telling us that Abraham fails in the exact same way that Adam failed. Abraham uh, fails to guard Sarah, his wife, from Egypt. He fails to guard her from Pharaoh. He fails to protect her in the same way that Adam failed to protect Eve from the servant. And in doing so, he falls short of his commission to be the guardian of his wife. And uh, now he's actually putting in jeopardy the seed of Sarah, his wife, because Pharaoh is now potentially going to sleep with her. And in that same way, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman theme is introduced to us once again in Genesis. So just to lay out the pattern, Moses himself, even in the first 12 chapters of Genesis, is introducing us not only to Adam, but to a second kind of Adam, Noah, and to a third kind of Adam, Abraham, all who fall short in the same kind of way that Adam falls short. So Moses himself, when he's writing Genesis, is developing the type, Adam, and then later types who fall short of the Adamic type. And then Paul picks up on this idea in the New Testament in Romans. So if you'll flip with me to Romans, this same argument is, is picked up by Paul, and this time with a successful resolution. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And I'll just start reading uh, from verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were sinning, was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And I want you to, I'm pausing on that language specifically because now we're going to be introduced to Jesus. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace to that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinner, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you're picking up on the theological argument of Paul. He's saying Adam failed in his commission. Because of Adam's failure, death enters the world and sin and all this brokenness. And now uh, Paul says, but Jesus is a new Adam, a better Adam who fulfills the commission. And instead of him trading his wife and, and letting her die in his place, now Jesus comes and dies for his bride. And now he redeems his bride unto himself. He resurrects and now he gets all the, all the spoils as it were. Not in an unrighteous way, but in a righteous way. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, there is now not death reigning through one man, but now righteousness reigns through the one man. So all who are in him have life. And this is the foundation of Paul's theology that there's a, a death in Adam, the type, and there's a life in Christ, the type. And this is not something that Paul invents uh, after Jesus comes on the scene and now he has to justify his theology. This is something Moses was laying out from the beginning, even in his writing of Genesis. So Paul is appropriately understanding what Moses said and picking up on the right nuances of what is being uh, articulated. So that's an example of the use of typology in the Old Testament. There's so much more to be said about this. There's whole books written on this, but I just wanna, I'll pause there for the sake of brevity and then uh, go to your questions.